Back to Star Wars Escape Pod and another episode of Rebels Talk Part 15, where we will be talking about Season 3, Episode 15, 16, 17, and 18. This is another episode of Rebels Talk. And uh, if you are joining us for the first time, you know, welcome to Star Wars Escape Pod. We've been going through Star Wars Rebels all the way from the beginning, all the way through the end, all the way back with our uh, esteemed co host Blake as we journey. To Star Wars Ahsoka, which comes out on Disney Plus August 23rd. Look for the after show on Star Wars Escape Pod when that happens as well. But in the meantime, let's get into Star Wars Rebels. Another happy landing. Anyone in the Order knew Anakin Skywalker. Few would live to see what he became. Before the end of the Clone Wars, I walked away from him and the Jedi. In this war, you will face more than just droids. As your master, it's my responsibility to prepare you. I won't always be there to look out for you. I could use the help. Once a rebel, always a rebel. Be afraid. And trust your instincts. I know you can do this, Ahsoka. All right, that was the most recent Star Wars uh, Ahsoka teaser trailer. And uh, we did say we were going to talk about it in the last... Star Wars Rebels talk episode of the podcast, but uh, alas, here we are. <laughs> At long last. At long last, a couple days later. Is it just me? Or was that a lot of Anakin? That was a lot of Anakin, yeah. Oh, man. And uh, just so you know, I did go back to the Tales of the Jedi animated show to uh, investigate whether or not it was script that they had Hayden read from something that Anakin may have said to Ahsoka in that training sequence that she does and uh it is new dialogue completely new that was Hayden that was Hayden but it was unscripted from any previous Star Wars story that we've already seen as as, to my knowledge so that's cool (laughs) I mean uh you know I, I mean clearly Hayden Christensen is you know as suspected from IMDb going to be a part of this Ahsoka project, and it just uh, makes sense rolling on to Obi Wan. He's already, you know, a part of the game again. Yeah, you know, I guess the main uh, kind of speculation that I'm seeing on the Twitter is is uh, will it be Force Ghost? Will it be, uh, you know, flashback? Will it be, you know, something to do? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Force Ghost is the only other option really because I maybe mean, he's dead. You know, at this point. Well, so. 
Anakin has force ghosted in the novels. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which book was it? Shadows of the Sith. Ah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to Luke. Because we're all waiting for that for the entire sequels. Man. And that didn't happen. So at yeah. least they gave it to us in a book, I guess, you know, throw us a bone. Exactly. But, exactly. And then um, they came up with some excuse why he couldn't do it again. So that's why it wasn't in the movies. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping that, uh, I mean, a lot of people are hoping to see him again. Uh, so it would be very cool. And, you know, if we do see him again, um, and no matter what kind of form he takes, uh, either way, they're going to have to improve on that de-aging technology because... I don't think the flashback in Kenobi really did it for me. They didn't kind of make him young enough looking. Well, I, th- I don't think they changed him very much. No, they didn't. They hardly did anything. It was just touch-ups. But it, it, like, still, he still didn't look like, you know, that young. It was twenty years ago. Yeah. Trying to take yeah, right. twenty years off of a full-time yeah, smoker. I mean, that's it's right. Difficult yeah. to do. He does have the smoker's cheeks. Or those yeah. a little bit. They look a little bit loose. Yeah. Uh, that and the wrinkles on his forehead. Other than that, he looks pretty close. Yeah, he looks pretty good still. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all things considered, I think he looks he looks pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's Hayden Christensen. He's a good looking guy. Especially <laughs> considering he gets to exercise because he just teleports everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well. <laughs> Where's my jumper too? <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, I know we're we're all looking forward to Ahsoka a lot. I mean, uh, you know, this is part of the reason why we've been hyping up Ahsoka through all of these Star Wars Rebels talks, and you know, which we started this whole endeavor uh, May fifteenth this year. That's when we started watching uh, Star Wars Rebels. That's when we did Rebels Talk Part One. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's taken us two per week. Then it would be on target. Yeah, maybe. Um, this, is, this is one time I might not stay on target. Yeah, here we are four months later. And, uh, you know, we're over the halfway point. We're almost there. And we've got one, two, three, four, five left to, to go. Uh, five, five left um, recordings-wise, you know, for Rebels Talk. Because so, you know, anyone listening, there's going to be uh, 20 episodes in the series. And, uh, you know, hopefully you have haven't had a, a crazy hard time, you know, following along with us. If you, if you have, uh, you know, it, always check the description of all the Rebels Talk parts for which episodes of the show that, that we, we go through. But if you are following along with us, uh, you know, staying a couple episodes ahead, it's not that hard to do uh, because we do pretty much block them together four episodes at a time, which I think is probably a manageable number. You know, that's like an hour and 20, hour and 10 minutes for a lot of people to just Throw throw on Disney Plus for a bit, you know, on the while you're waiting for your coffee and (laughs) if you have the slowest coffee machine known to man, that is. But well, um, or you can enjoy the episode while you're drinking your first coffee of the day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, for any of our high school friends, one with your first Monster Energy drink of the day. Exactly, you know, throw one on with breakfast, throw one on with lunch, you know, throw one on after dinner. You already got three under your belt. You know, you you just could do that every day. You're gonna get through it in no time. So, uh, you know, those of us who uh, uh, have been, you know, those of you who are stuck with us so far, uh, super glad to have you back with us this this week and um, this episode. And uh, you know, only five more sets to go. So you're almost there. We're we're almost there. 
And for those of you who are jumping in at the last moment, you just want to kind of get to the nitty gritty. You're, you skip season one and two for the most part, and you're just, you know, doing the last couple episodes, season three and season four. We're, we're uh, you know, we're happy that you joined us and uh, hope you stick with us to the end. And we hope that you are enjoying Star Wars Rebels as well, because, you know, there's a lot to like and a lot of story that is probably relevant to be told. So. <laughs> well, at least to Ahsoka. As, there's got to be tie-ins. There has to be. Like It just feels like all roads are leading this direction. Well, this one, for sure, there is, there is some stuff to talk about here, especially with like Sabine's kind of training and everything like that. So without further ado, this is Rebels Talk Part 15. And for those of you who don't know who that second voice is on the podcast, this is our esteemed host, Blake. Hello there! <laughs> and uh, I'm your host, Josh, and uh, this is another episode of Rebels Talk. And uh, we are on Season 3, Episode 15. And today in this podcast, we'll be reviewing Episode 15, 16, 17, and 18 of Season 3 of Star Wars Rebels. So this is Trials of the Dark Saber, directed by Stuart Lee, written by Dave Filoni, aired on Disney XD January 21st, 2017, guest stars Kevin McKidd, and here is the summary. Upon being told by Fen Rao what status the Dark Saber Sabine recovered uh, from Dathomir holds upon the Mandalorians, especially the prestigious House Vizsla, who once ruled Mandalore, Kanan decides that Sabine should, weed it, uh, <laughs> Sabine should wield it in order to rally the Mandalorians into the ranks of the Rebel Alliance. Sabine, who resents her family, reluctantly agrees to the proposal and retreats with Kanan and Ezra to the Bendu's abode to be trained in the Saber's use. But her persisting frustration at the expectations thrust upon her starts to gnaw on Kanan's own patience. Tensions ensue uh, between the two, which culminate in Sabine walking away from her training. But after a talk with Hera and a mutual apology upon Sabine's return, Kanan offers her the, her the Darksaber, and the training begins in earnest. As it progresses, Sabine is also forced by Kanan to let loose with her own emotional turmoil, revealing the last the truth about her past. She felt guilty about what the weapons she designed in her time at the Imperial Academy had done to her own people and that she wanted to make up for it by saving them from the Empire's clutches, only to see her own family turning their backs on her due to the fear of the Empire. Upon this difficult confession, Kanan, Ezra, and Rao profess their loyalty to Sabine no matter what course she will eventually choose. Crew to talk about the history of the Darksaber, Sabine's maturity this season, and the importance of training. Check it out. In Trials of the Darksaber, we learn a bit more about the history of the Darksaber. How long has this history been developed? When the Darksaber was first created on Clone Wars, for a long time, the character Pre Vizsla that first wields the Darksaber in the show, he had what was called in Star Wars a vibro blade, which is not a lightsaber. When George saw that, he kind of said, yeah, I've, I've heard of those things, but there's no way it could stop a lightsaber. 
Darksaber. And that's where George created the Darksaber. As we started doing Rebels and we realized that there was this connection that could quite logically fall out of the storytelling that Maul was the last person to have this thing and he could cross paths with Sabine, the need came to like, okay, let's start defining this thing. Why does this thing exist? Where did it come from? This was an opportunity for us to kind of widen the mythology of the Darksaber and kind of give an idea of how it was connected to the Jedi. And in this particular case, the ruling parties of the House Vizsla had used this sword for many generations to keep power. So there's a sense that people would follow a sword if they believed in who was wielding it. In Trials of the Darksaber, we see Sabine really come to terms with her Mandalorian legacy. How big do you think that has helped mature her this season? It is who she is at her core, and that is where she came from. But I think for the reasons that she left and how painful it was for her to leave, she goes with it and embraces it and fully commits to her Mando-ness, which is awesome. This is essentially a whole episode about training. What inspirations came into creating it? I love this episode because it's so different. I think it's such a great change of pace from some of our other episodes that are more plot heavy. This is so much more character driven. There's a deeper training going on and that deeper training is Kanan learns basically something that this isn't about him, that he has to actually let go and allow her to grow up. By the same token, she is actually really preparing herself to face her family. I wanted to impress on everybody the importance of Sabine training with a lightsaber that was going to be difficult for her. So I wanted to spend the entire episode on that. If we tell the story the right way, we don't need a secondary little plot here. It's not important. Like the whole thing should be about her training. And it's not about her learning to fight with a sword. It's about her being a character and a person that has feelings and emotion and depth and dimension. And all of those things drive her forward or pull her back and stop her. This was definitely my favorite episode we've done so far. Dave doesn't like to tell us too much in advance, but he actually told me about this episode quite a bit in advance, sort of mentally prepped me for what we were going to be doing. By the end, I wanted Tia to be very emotional. I wanted her to be struggling and to see the depth of the hurt that her family caused her. And in some ways, the doubt from her friends there like Kanan. And that part of her anger and the explosiveness and art is that she's fighting through so many things. It was a little bit of a challenge, but man, it was so nice to just have that time with Dave. I'm really grateful that Dave gave me that opportunity because in voiceover, we don't get that many opportunities to sort of go there. It's one of the few times that I actually recorded the actors prior to shooting all the scenes. Normally on these, we shoot everything and then we record. But I wanted her emotions to drive everything that we were doing. And I thought, well, I can always re-record later, but there was no need to re-record it. She was so good. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, this was very character driven. Oh, man, for sure. Yeah, I love that about it. And I also, I know Dave said, like, it's not necessarily part of the sword dueling, but, uh, you know, in regards to Ahsoka, it totally is because, you know, people have been seeing Sabine wielding Ezra's green lightsaber in the trailers, right? And I think there's a bit of a question when it comes to her eligibility to be a Jedi or to be um, an apprentice at all to to Ahsoka, right? And um, that's a conversation kind of, you know, being brought into light again with this Star Wars Rebels episode. So we can get into that, you know, a lot. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, to no, start, I think I think you're you're really like honing in on something here. Yeah, because I I think what we're what we're it, this episode I think ended up being a huge linchpin to a lot of the Disney Plus era Star Wars because we're learning a lot about how light, lightsabers work, especially for non Force users, uh, and it, it's tying it tied directly into what happened to. 
um, like Mando, as he was trying to train with the dark saber, and now it's going to tie directly into Ahsoka as well. Yeah, through Sabine. Yeah, and and so you know, with her beginning this lightsaber training, you know, on behalf of uh, Kanan and and Ezra. I mean, uh, we also see some interesting things that sort of come to light which has been an ongoing debate for a long time uh, because when Sabine holds up the blade and ignites it for the first time, you know, she's, she says uh, it's heavier than expected. Right. And Kanan says, I actually it's, have an audio clip of that. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Do you want to play that? Play that one first? Sure. I've also yeah. got the, uh, the history of the dark saber scene. As well. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that one. Uh, let's do that one after here. Cause like, okay. yeah. yeah now, cause since, me- since we're on the topic, since we're on the topic here, but uh, yeah, it seems super relevant to kind of everything we've really been talking about, especially recently as we're seeing the trailers. Yeah, but it really this, does. During Mandalorian, this was a very common thing we were talking about quite a lot. Okay, here we go. Ignite the blade. <laughs> oh. It's heavier than I thought. Energy constantly flows through the crystal. You're not fighting with a simple blade as much as you are directing a current of power. Your thoughts, your actions, they become energy. They flow through the crystal as well and become a part of the blade. That's probably the best explanation that we've yeah, had. Will be drawn to- right? I was thinking that too, because we more or less get the same description from the armorer. But Kanan explains it way, way better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just makes, it just, it, it's uh, more comprehensible. Well, that's because he has sort of that force kind of spiritual side about, you know, the knowledge of really what's going on with the kyber crystal mm-hmm. connecting with the, fo- with the user of, of the blade, right? Because he understands it's all about the flow of the force of yeah. you and the blade working together. Exactly. Where she was, she had the rough concept of you and the blade need to work together, but didn't understand the why. Yeah. Yeah, and that's um, and that you know, and it's something with with lightsaber lore at least that's becoming a more important thing. Like what we were we touched up on in the last Rebels Talk episode, I think I mentioned it. But uh, you know, the the actual Kyber crystal is like is a rock that resonates with the Force, unlike most. I mean, even though the Force flows through many things, like the the Kyber crystal is almost like a well of energy, right? It's 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 like uh, it's different. It, it reacts differently with uh, and it almost. Uh, connects alive. with yeah it's almost alive exactly because because the process of bleeding a kyber crystal is 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 you know it's called bleeding for a reason it almost makes it feel like it's like a person in a way but torturing it to the force yeah yeah, yeah. so it's it's it, it, it's interesting right and and i think um for her to later say uh after she's kind of had some time to train with it against canon she says uh, the blade's feeling lighter now, and then Canon, you know, follows up with that, saying that's because you're connecting with the blade and it's becoming a part of you. And you know how uh, fast she makes that transition, though, doesn't that make it? They said that in this episode too. They were like, yeah. "You've come very far in a very okay fast, you know, short time or whatever." Because it's, it's in her lineage. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. But, you know, like the blade, like recognized her, just like the you know the wand chooses a wizard. Yeah, something like that. I, like, well, and we've seen Bo-Katan wield that thing properly, right? Yeah. In season three of The Mandalorian. And Mando Din Djarin has never connected with that blade very well. No, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Is He trained with it for 
I guess what we're led to to believe is months, a couple months, yeah, years, and he never came to tune with it properly. Yeah, exactly. Um, Fender out. One more thing that actually I was going to bring up, but Kanan was literally about to mention it here in the recording. So I'm going to play one more second because I thought it was actually really neat. Oh, sure, yeah. Go through the crystal as well and become a part of the blade. The blades will be drawn to each other. That was new information. Mm. The blades will be drawn to each other. So I think this is an explanation to why when a, a duelists are fighting, the blades clash and they stick. Yeah, the lightsaber lock? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's never really been explained. It's always... In the EU, it's always like it's like a magnet thing. Everything's kind of like magnetized because there's like a, a mag- magnetic field around the blade. Yeah. But this was this is basically... I don't know if that's like the technical explanation of it still, but this is kind of the re... This is now like the canon. Like this is now a thing for sure. It's an interesting thing to say because there's almost a, technic, a technical, physical sort of purpose behind saying something like that about the lightsaber blades. But then there's also sort of that other meaning that it has, you know, just like through the force, like Mm -hmm. the blades are drawn to each other. Right. But, uh, you know, when you think about the sound effects of a blade sliding against another lightsaber blade, Mm -hmm. they clashing, they, it almost sounds like a, like a sci-fi laser kind of Velcro ripping apart sort of thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there, there is a bit of a, you know, it's kind of like a, it feels like they're sticking, right? I thought it was more of like a, a like electrical kind of you know, crossing or whatever sound when they clash. Yeah, but like yeah. when they when they're when they're lightsaber locked and then one of them kind of rips away, it it almost sounds like it's like a tearing off of the like a like a electricy kind of Velcro sort of. I need to look for it. I don't yeah. know if I've noticed that before. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, it kind of plays into that a little bit too, I guess. But yeah, that's that's great. It's pretty great point to bring up. I wanted to bring it up because that, that caught my ear almost immediately when you said it. I'm like, that makes sense. Yep. That, I'm yep. glad that they actually bothered to include that. Totally. And, you know, it kind of um, gives us sort of a long backstoried reason as to why Sabine can hold her own with the lightsaber. You know, when we do see her in Ahsoka, I mean, clearly Lock she's uh, just any lightsaber. <laughs> Yeah, clearly she's like, you know, um, clearly she's um, pretty, pretty accustomed to dealing with a lightsaber blade, even though she's not a force user. Kanan does say in this episode, the force, you know, resides in all living things. You know, he, he says that to Hera, right? And um, it's, it's almost like he's basically saying anyone can be trained to properly use a lightsaber, and resonate with the blade because all beings are are of of the force. Like everyone without midi chlorines, life would not exist, as Qui-Gon says to Anakin, right? Mm-hmm. So if someone's mind is open to it, right, one is essentially open to the to the force and is able to, you know, perhaps use that in its in in uh, almost like a sort of like a battle meditation with with this living crystal within the lightsaber mm-hmm. you know perhaps that makes a difference when it comes to the weight of the blade so i think as sabine sort Good of point connects with her her inner you know like she because as she's training like she's kind of like 
she's unleashing all these like bottled up feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's like explaining to us like why her family thinks of her as a traitor yeah. and all this other stuff. And it was really cool to see all that history kind of given to us finally at this point in the, in the series. But um, it also, you know, not only was it like furthering her character, but it was also giving us a reason why uh, she's just kind of advancing so well. And, you know, I feel like a good reason for someone to not advance in their Jedi training or their lightsaber training, whatever, is because they're emotional blockage. It's funny because the Jedi trained to not be emotional at all. So Mm -hmm. wouldn't they be blocking themselves? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, like, I guess, yeah, I mean, maybe they make it harder on themselves. I don't know. I guess why didn't they have to... Meditate more on it? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Where where are my feelings? Oh. I think I found one. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes would make a very good Jedi. Yeah, he probably would. <laughs> uh, Fenrau knows of the Darksaber because he's Mandalorian, naturally. And he shares the tale of the only Mandalorian Jedi to ever exist, which is uh, Tar Vizsla. Uh, we did an entire What Happened episode on Tar Vizsla prior to the events of one of the Mandalorian seasons, I believe it was. Uh, so if anyone's looking for that, um, you know, our link tree, go to the podcast description. There's a link there to our link tree. And uh, on the link tree, uh, there is uh, something at the bottom there called Podcast Archives. And you can hit that link and access a giant spreadsheet where you can search the entire page for keywords using the control F function on your keyboard. Uh, if you're on mobile, I think it's up in the top right hand corner. There's a search page option in your uh, browser app and uh, just search for tar T A R R E. Uh, and that'll bring up our tar Vizsla, what happened and Mandalorian season three spec episode, uh, which came out 2021, December 6th. And uh, that episode is a full history of what happened with Tar Vizsla, the beginnings of the Darksaber, all that stuff that's relevant. But in the meantime, uh, you have an audio clip as to kind of what Fen Rao says about this story. This is a specific uh, explanation of it. Yeah. yeah, let's take a listen. What's this about? A lightsaber? Not just any lightsaber. <laughs> So you recognize it? That I do. It is the Dark Saber, a symbol for the leader of House Vizsla, and later the group known as Death Watch. I didn't know Mandalorians developed a type of lightsaber. We didn't. This was one of a kind. Legend tells that it was created over a thousand years ago by Tar Vizsla, the first Mandalorian ever inducted into the Jedi Order. After his passing, the Jedi kept the saber in their temple. That was until members of House Vizsla snuck in and liberated it. They used the saber to unify the people and strike down those who would oppose them. One time, they ruled all of Mandalore wielding this blade. This saber is an important symbol to that house and respected by the other clans. I imagine Sabine was excited to recover it. (laughs) You wouldn't know it. After we got back from Dathomir, she gave it to me for safekeeping and hasn't brought it up since. She doesn't want the responsibility. Kanan, if Sabine can wield this saber, she can reunite one of the most powerful houses in all of Mandalore. You're talking about raising an army. With Sabine leading it. 
All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, this uh, animated short style on the wall, you know, you get the shadows moving on the yeah. very Gendy style Anakin yeah. cave vision. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of that a little bit when I watched it again. I was like, oh, that reminds me of that that 2D Clone Wars moment where Anakin has that vision in the cave and he gets all those tattoos on his body. That's and, right. You know, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Sounds full episodes. Actually, they're on Disney Plus now. They are, yeah. So, yeah. So for those of you who want to check out the original Clone Wars animated show, it's um, it's called it's under the Star Wars Vintage Collection, I think. I think so. And it's called Clone Wars, Star Wars Clone Wars. And uh, not canon anymore, uh, but... It's considered... Cult classic within the fans. Dave Filoni said he considers it, like, the stories are from the people's perspective of what happened. Right. So it's like in-universe legends. Yeah, in-universe legends, yeah. Uh, Which is a good way to look at it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, it was cool. But, yeah, just sort of a little callback there. I was like, oh, reminds me of that. Uh, we begin to see uh, the start of uh, Sabine's lightsaber training. Um, sorry, I already went into that. Just to touch on, because you brought it up, just to touch on the the, the weight difficulty wielding it thing. I feel like this episode, what it was trying to do, and what they used, I guess they, they used the opportunity to do it, is to try to bridge the gap between the original trilogy lightsaber fighting and the prequel lightsaber fighting. Yeah. Because Mark Hamill, uh, he often brought up, uh, when working with George Lucas and the lightsaber duels, he wanted to swing the lightsaber fast because it was, it was light, right? It's just like a training stick, essentially. Right. But George like, no, they're very heavy. They're like broadswords. Because he was thinking it, it, they should fight more like old Britain, like old, the old, old what, like Western kingdoms, right? Yeah. And then in the prequels, he changes mind, be more of a fast-paced kind of samurai fighting. So there's that huge discrepancy. I know a lot of people took issue with this from the time the prequels came out. So this, to me, felt like they took uh, Dave specifically took the opportunity to try to explain why there's the the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was cool to see that for sure. Uh, seeing how Ezra and, and Kanan both have some sort of influence in her fighting style as well. I mean, they're the ones who initially teach her. Uh, and since the multiple Ahsoka trailers have come out, we've come to realize that Ahsoka sort of in the uh, final moments of season four, we'll kind of see the segue into this moment, but uh, she eventually becomes her follow-up teacher, you know, mm-hmm. to, to teach her the ways of, lightsaber combat so i would assume is this based um, on the, the master line yeah the the, the um, yeah yeah the master line in the trailer and and uh the the more one of the more recent ones where they did an entire seven minute uh master and apprentice like behind the scenes look at the show and uh, they showcased ahsoka's mastery to sabine in this seven minute like thing and it's really it's really interesting it's on youtube if anyone wants to watch it and, uh, you know, it just kind of like highlighted that relationship between master and apprentice. And um, again, like, like we'll have to wait and see, you know, what what really that means for Sabine and her classification as an apprentice. And for her to be um, a non force using uh, person, as it's in this episode, Kanan makes a point about stating that. And, uh, you know, for her to be a non force using 
Jedi would be the first of her kind, you know, in 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 a way, right? Like I don't know if she'd really be a Jedi thing. She'd just be a lightsaber duelist. Yeah. I mean but I mean like again yeah, I guess it's like what defines a Jedi? Is it the power? Is Soka's it like not a Jedi either, so how would that make her a Jedi? Right, 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 right. I guess so, yeah. So I don't know, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Like what what exactly is she then? You know? If she is a Question. if she is an apprentice, then of of of, of what exactly? <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're an apprentice of something, you know, it's usually a you know a a, a way or a trade or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like like what is she an apprentice of? And and I guess we're gonna have to watch Ahsoka to find out. So. Uh, yeah, so uh, Kanan admits to Hera that the Force resides in all living things, but she's blocked off to it because of her Mandalorian ways. He makes an effort to say that. So it's her Mandalorian way of thinking and her um, cultural attributes, I guess, that kind of get in the way of the Jedi mindset because we're thinking about two different, very different factions and ways of living, right? The Mandalorian culture sort of clashes with that of the Jedi and the way that the Jedi kind of do their business and the way that they they think and the way that they operate and uh it's two very different things two different very uh different cultures beliefs so on and so forth so it's, it's probably the way they approach problems too yeah totally totally i think a lot of it comes down to the the mindset that um they want to overpower everything with strength which is why they probably align really well with the sith so it's weird that they're not open to the, the dark side of the force because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is susceptible, I guess. Uh, Sabine acquires Mandalorian Vam braces from, Ven, uh, from Fen, uh, which include grappling line, paralyzing darts, and a repulsor, all designed to combat the abilities of a and Jedi. a shockwave thing that works like a force. Book. Yeah, the repulsor. Yeah. Well, that's what it's called. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, makes Ezra out to be a child when he says, that's no fair. <laughs> <laughs> You're cheating. Yeah, you're cheating. Um, yeah, I was like, shut up, Ezra. But, <laughs> but you know, I don't know. I like, I, I like the fact that they that they threw that in there. So I guess going forward in the series, maybe she'll make good use of these gauntlets and perhaps she maybe still has them later on. Maybe we'll see them in Ahsoka. They get so. damaged in the first three minutes of them being on screen. So, okay, so I, I wrote this down as well. Yeah, so how did the Mandalorian gauntlet made of Beskar get damaged by the is dark it saber? It because is. I always thought the armor plates were Beskar, but I'm not sure that the actual. It has to be though, because Man Din Djarin uses his gauntlets to combat the dark saber when he's fighting Moff Gideon. That's right? Maybe they're not all Beskar. I feel like they would be. I feel like they would be. Is I think it's like like knockoff, like wish app version. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Like like so far, I feel like. There isn't very many Mandalorian people who, and this is prior to the destruction of Sundari, so it's not like Beskar is like a shortage, right? right? Like this is prior to the purge of her people, so Moff Gideon has not had his way with belting it all down, belting yeah. it all down, right? Because that's after Bo-Katan gets the dark saber, you know, that's that's when he goes after Mandalore. Speaks to Bogatan, has her surrender, gets get, gets the dark saber from her as a as a symbol of her surrender, and then he goes forward with bombing all the people. Right, this is after all this happens. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I don't think like Beskar is still very accessible by Mandalorian people still. I don't think Sabine would have gauntlets that aren't Beskar. I think it was just a bad effect. I think it was just like in the story, they just were like, oh, we got to make it look like you got damaged. Like, let's just slice it up. Not so, really thinking for me. If you text or if you tweeted Pablo, um, he would, he would reply with not all, uh, Mandalorian vamp braces are created equal. Yeah. Well, okay. And then I'm, I'm going to skip forward very briefly before pulling it back again to the next episode where Gar Saxon is shot in the chest by a blaster bolt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is there was that too. He is clearly wearing Beskar armor, right? Like it's that well, white got, painted stuff. Yeah, he's got the white one. So that's why I wondered we had always speculated that the Imperial ones don't have Beskar, they have plastoid. Same as Stormtrooper. We'd speculated that until it was confirmed that it is Beskar, it's just painted. Yeah, maybe it was on the Wikipedia. Yeah. They're wrong, Josh. But I feel okay, like they okay. just go back and forth. Well, I was thinking about actually this exact scenario in, in my mind, trying to compare it to what we see in the Clone Wars series, which is it's the same thing. They get sh- shot in the head, and it's like they just go down. And yeah. It's like, so like, what is going on? And then we see we see Din Djarin get shot after shot after shot after shot, and they'll just ricochet off of him. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I like I don't know what's where's going on. Where's our consistency? Like, yeah, where's the consistency in Beskar integrity? You know, we're like, living in a society. <laughs> I just don't get it, right? But at the same time, it's like okay, I guess it's an animated show. Again, maybe it's just for the 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 cheating of the story for the sake of violence and the age group targeted for the series. I would assume they opted to hit that dude in the chest because. They didn't want to make it like a face shot and like have the blast vocal through his head because that would make more is sense. His, is his helmet made out of Beskar? He wasn't wearing a helmet in that shot. So it would have made more sense to go through his head. But they had a shot of his face and his chest. So it would have been a little too gruesome to have a blaster bolt in his forehead, right? So I'm just imagining like, well, they didn't want to probably target like the neck or like the head in the, in the kid series. So maybe they just went for the chest. Yeah, but like it's just one of those things. I was like, okay, well, like they gotta they gotta explain this at some point. Anyways, um, we found out why Sabine left her family and her history with the Empire. We're gonna get more into this later uh, in a future episode of Star Wars Rebels. I believe it's sometime in season four. Uh, but she constructed a weapon that essentially kills Mandalorians, mm-hmm. um, despite. Despite the the armor, and we'll totally hit that up later in a new ep- in another episode of Rebels Talk. But um, she had something to do with it. So yeah, that was that. Uh, season three episodes. Oh, Pablo points or Pudus? What do you give it? What What are Pablo points and Pudus, Josh? Uh, score a seven. Three Pablo Pudus being the absolute worst. Of the worst. Moving up from there, you got two Pablo Pudus, one Pablo Pudu. A Bendu is a fifty percent score. And uh, Pablo points. You got one, two, three, three being the best, the best, the best. Um, I would give this one two Pablo points. Yeah, it's great. I think I'm I'm right there. Great episode. You know, I loved it. Uh, We didn't. The one thing I wanted to ask you about, we didn't get to though, um, was during the duel between um, Sabine and and uh, Kanan. She gets really emotional, and then Kanan loses. Mm-hmm. He's kind of beaten down. 
I couldn't help but think this feels like Ray and and yeah, Ray and, and Luke and Last Jedi hadn't come out yet at this yeah. point. It did feel a little odd. I think. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard to kind of like come up with an excuse as to why that happened. To either of them. To either of them. But I think the only thing I can imagine for for this scenario, I can't speak for Last Jedi. Quite frankly, I just don't want to. <laughs> uh, but oh gosh, it's part of Star Wars. You gotta learn to accept it. I mean, the quick answer for Last Jedi is Luke was just not in tune with the Force. Um, right. But this one, I would say, you know, Kanan just kind of. I mean, he's blind, but you know, he probably was very briefly. Be overwhelmed, overwhelmed. Emo- her emotions. Maybe? Yeah, I think so. Made him um, like uh, off balance. I think so. I think in an actual fight where he his life wasn't on the line, he probably would have tuck and rolled out of it. More focused. And yeah, he probably would have been a bit more. You know, this one he was completely on the defensive. He was letting her take the attack stance mm-hmm. because he was allowing her to unleash that side of her. Right. Right. And it was important for that character to really be on the the storytelling side of that fight, right? Both physically and emotionally. And uh, that's pretty much the best way that I can kind of come up with a reason for in my head for your question. No, if that, that makes, makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, I think that actually, um, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's likely what they were going for. Yeah. Especially because Kanan is blind, it makes sense that he's really reacting through senses, and if he's being overwhelmed by these waves of emotion from her, and someone that is, like you're saying, he's not in open combat that they're trying to hurt each other, like there's someone he's trying to, to train, he knows really well, so he's probably not guarded yeah. emotionally around her. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that makes sense. I think one thing I would have liked to have seen in this episode, despite my two Pablo point score, is uh, I would have liked to have seen something we saw earlier in the series, which is the intentional setting of the lightsaber to training mode. That yeah. would have been something I would have liked to see. It's a slight adjustment of the power setting. I assume the dark saber has it. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's too old. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But either way, it would have been something I would have liked to have seen. And that's yeah, that's they all use I have. Sticks instead. Yeah. That's all I have as a gripe because we saw Ezra and Kanan literally and it even has like they even made like sounds for the training mode to be more kind of like high pitched and electrocution ish. And like (laughs) it was cool. (laughs) Like this was like a season two. Right. I just said this to training. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was like season one or season two. But yeah, like when he was training Ezra, Mm -hmm. you know, they they had like it was like in the ghost and they were like hitting each other's lightsabers. It was like, you know, I'm just like, that's cool. Like, I I remember saying, like, making a point of like pointing it out and being like that. I liked that. Yeah, because it makes sense because Padawans would have to train. Yeah. So I I would like to see more of this going forward. Like any training sequences with lightsaber, like let's get that intentional hum and that intentional like other look to it with the, it's got like a foggy look inside of it. Not so sharp, you know? And anyway, yeah, just distorted. I liked it. It was like kind of like the one thing that was missing from this, but um, I thought it was a great episode. Put it up to the dark sabers old doesn't have it. Yeah, sure. Uh, What would you give this for a score? Yeah, two, two point, two, two and a third. Two and a third. Wow, that's pretty good. Two. North of two Pablo points, eh? 
Yeah, I like this one a lot. This, this, the, the reason though, the main reason is this episode is a linchpin to so much that's come afterwards. Yeah. So and so much of what we're gonna see. Mm-hmm. So like it's it's so uh, it's so good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, two and two point three. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Okay, season three, episode sixteen, the Legacy of Mandalore, directed by Mel Zwyer, uh, written by Christopher Yost, premiered on Disney XD February eighteenth, twenty seventeen. Guest stars Kevin McKidd, Ray Stevenson, uh, Ritesh Rajan, and Sharmila Devar. Sabine and Ezra and Kanan and Rao travel to uh, from Adelon to Cronus in the Mandalore sector. So we got a new planet in the Mandalore sector in order to straighten out manners with. Sabine's estranged family. However, the initial reception is quite hostile since Sabine is still considered a traitor to her family due to the defection from the Empire. Upon being presented with the Darksaber, Sabine's mother, Countess Ursa, allows her daughter to benefit uh, a personal conversation. Uh, benefit of a, allows the, the benefit of a personal conversation, but is still too fearful of an imperial reprisal against her people and her husband being held hostage to join the rebellion. So she decides to sell out to the Jedi to Gar Saxon in order for Sabine's freedom. Saxon, however, immediately goes back to on his word and denounces the entire Clan Wren as traitors to the Empire. Clan Wren and the rebels start fighting back against the Imperial collaborators and wielding Ezra's lightsaber. Sabine engages in the personal duel against Saxon using the darksaber. Sabine emerges victorious, but as she turns away from him, Saxon prefers to shoot her in the back. Ursa kills him instead, thus resorting her, uh, re- restoring her broken ties with her daughter, foreseeing the chaos Mandalore will face with the demise of its imperial governor. Sabine and Rao decide to stay behind to help restore order, and for Sabine to find the one person who is truly worth leading her people into war against the Empire. So there we go. Um, let's hit up this Rebels talk, uh, sorry, Rebels recon. Mandalore gave us our first look at Sabine's family. I sat down with cast and crew to talk about the origins of Clan Wren, what they've been up to since Sabine left, and what Gar Saxon's death means for the Mandalorians. Check it out. We meet Sabine's family in Legacy of Mandalore. Did you get to record in the studio with the other Wrens? I did. You did? Yes. Luckily, I got to meet my bro and my mom, and we got to record together, which was really cool, because I wasn't sure that I would get that opportunity, but it was, it was really fun. We meet Sabine's family for the first time in Legacy of Mandalore. What can you tell us about what they've been up to since Sabine they have been embroiled in the politics of Mandalore. The Empire has taken over and has basically put someone like Gar Saxon in charge. They've kind of have fallen on hard times, you could say. It's probably been a few years of damage control just to try to restore some of their status. They're very downtrodden and ostracized, and that's why their armor is all gray. They have all these subdued looks as far as like what Sabine has, because I just wanted to show design-wise that the color, the life has been sucked out of them. Another little fact, Sabine's mother is the Wren. Her father basically marries into that family, but because the Wrens are more powerful, he takes her name. Is Clan Wren from Cronest originally, and how does that planet correlate with Mandalore? When you think about Mandalore, understand that it encompasses a lot of territory. There's something like a thousand worlds in Mandalorian territory that are neutral, not part of the Republic. They've lived on that planet for quite a long time. That's their stronghold, and you need to think of everything as like systems, almost like provinces. I've given a lot of thought to Mandalorian culture since the Clone Wars. There are clans and houses and there are some that see themselves as more rightfully Mandalorian and that would be like Vis 
Isla. The Wrens are not from Mandalore. The Wrens fall into a group that would have been conquered by Mandalore. They are a branch of it and they've been loyal to Vizsla House, so they are thought of very highly. What does Ursa's killing of Gar Saxon mean for Clan Wren? It basically draws a line in the sand as far as what side of Mandalore's current political situation do they stand on. There's going to be a vacuum of power, and I think Ursa realizes that this is the opportunity, the chance to basically return her family, not necessarily to power so much, but really to kind of restore their security. Some clans would respect that because it shows strength, and it shows solidarity in the family, but it also throws Mandalore into civil war again. So Mandalore, at this point, just like Fenral says, is going to erupt into total chaos. So that's probably something we're going to get into in the, the future. At the end of this episode, Sabine decides to stay on Mandalore with her family. How do you think the Ghost crew is going to compensate for having a core member of their team gone? Probably Ezra's life will be a little bit easier without Sabine constantly like ragging on him. But I think to the Ghost crew, family is everything. Family is a top priority. And so when Sabine feels like this has to happen and this is where she needs to be, none of the crew questions it for a moment. All right. Well, that was really interesting. And I'm only just realizing after all this stuff with uh, Dave Filoni sharing about the Mandalorian culture a little bit more and the relationship with Clan Wren and, and the rest of the Mandalorian, that the fact that there's like a thousand worlds in Mandalorian space, like that blows me away. A thousand? That's what Pablo was just saying. Yeah. Oh, wow. But okay. at the same time, like I'm just thinking like, man, like a Game of Thrones style like show Pre, just on Mandalore? Just on Mandalore, pre, pre all the Star Wars movies, you know, by like hundreds of years, you and know, going the back. End, they unite and there's the Mandalorian Wars against the Jedi. Yeah, something, I don't know, like something, right? Like maybe we see like the Tar Vizsla moments, but like mm-hmm. kind of like the splintering of, of all the, these Mandalorian clans after being conquered and like kind of flash through time, you know, like that would be so cool. Kind of like House of Dragons style stuff. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's into that, but uh, maybe that's what the Game of Thrones directors were gonna do before they changed their mind. Man, that sucks. I mean, like that we didn't get that because right. I kind of wanted the same same idea of what you're just describing, but in the old old Republic timeline with yeah. like Sith and to be like the old Jedi versus like the old Sith Empire when they're like kind of like clawing over each other for power. Mm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That would have been really interesting. That would have been awesome. All right, so uh, we see Sabine's homeworld, Cronist, in the Mandalore sector, and we meet her brother and her mom for the first time. Her dad's being held hostage somewhere. Uh, Her brother is one of those Imperial super commandos now, and uh, that was interesting to see. And uh, Sabine's mother is... Sabine says specifically you're wearing their armor, which means he didn't repaint his armor. He was given a set of armor. Yeah, it's like the uniform imperial stuff, like the the imperial mandated stuff that Gar Saxon is sort of head of the... Who's manufacturing all all this armor then? Well, so... Mandalorian armor is supposed to be very difficult to make, and that's why it's passed down... I ass- generation generation. I assume it's being manufactured in Sundari City, right? Because like Sundari City's been conquered. That's on Mandalore itself as a, as the the capital planet of the space. And because uh, in this episode, uh, Tristan kind of goes, or maybe sorry, maybe it was somebody else, but someone says to Ursa uh, that there's a transmission. Uh, or you're being summoned by Sundari, and uh, when that's said to that character. She goes into another room and there's a hologram of Gar Saxon, who I assume is in Sundari City at that point in time, right? Because this is, again, before all the 
the big bombing, the you know, Order 66 of the Mandalorian, so to speak, by Moff Gideon, right? Like, Sindari City is still a thriving city. So I assume that means that the forges are still operational. They're still pumping out Beskar material. Uh, yeah. I assume they're still able to I make guess armor. I that the question, because I was always under the understanding that Mandalorian armor was very rare. I mean, it becomes very rare, yeah. But it's also only accessible to make by Mandalorians, right? Yeah, because the, the, the metal itself yeah. is very hard to work with. You need specifically Mandalorian forges and the skill to use it. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So it is Mandalorian stuff. It's just okay. the Empire so is kind of forcing them to do it in a certain way. Basically, this is their explanation to why there is a bajillion Mandos in the Clone Wars cartoon. And there's none in the original trilogy except for Boba Fett. <laughs> I, uh, well, I think that was uh, that was partially the Moff Gideon plot line. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, like the Empire wipes, starts to wipe out all the Mandalorians. So, like, that's probably their excuse for why we don't see too many of them, mm-hmm. you know, later in the series. But, uh, yeah, it's cool that Star Wars Rebels is kind of getting into all this stuff, right? Um, no, I totally agree. And this is definitely, like, we're really just kind of getting started here with where, where this is headed. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, Sabine's mother scolds her of the right to hold the Darksaber. So even Clan Wren on another, you know, planet in Mandalore space, like, is familiar and has respect for the, the laws that follow, you know, the wielder of the Darksaber. And they don't even interrupt with, you know, as far as her fight with Gar Saxon goes, like, they don't interrupt until the final couple seconds when she decides to spare his life and he decides to be a dick about it <laughs> you know and uh again the blaster bolt going through his armor mm. we've already touched up on that but i was like oh man that's a letdown that was the only thing that stuck with me as like a piece of negative you know for this entire episode otherwise i liked most of it well i got another one here that might annoy you yeah so did you hear what gar saxon's title is no i i, I He's the slip me, slip me by the hand of the emperor, the hand of the emperor. Do you recognize that title? Yeah, that's the title that Mary Jade yeah, held. Is. That's Mary Jade's title. That's right. And Gar Saxon has it in this episode. Interesting. They refer to him as the the hand of the emperor, Gar Saxon. Huh. Interesting. I heard that. I was so disappointed. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's just like. <sighs> Dave Filoni keeps bringing back all these EU things, and there's just a handful of stuff he refuses to bring back. The, I feel like the, the two that really stand out are uh, Starkiller, Galen Merrick, and Mare Jade. Those are really big, like, that's a bit like Thrawn-level stuff, though. They're pretty big, legends, weighty characters that I yeah, feel like people is, would expect a lot of That's why if it wasn't done right. Yes, but I also feel like those are the ones that are should be top priority to bring back. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. How do you think, like, I mean, this might be a bit of an off-subject thing, but, like, how do you think they would fit Mary Jade into the story now that we have the sequels? Yeah, that's where it gets tricky. So she would have to die before that. She dies in the novels or the comics or whatever it is. So yeah. it's not out of the question that she could be gone by then. But it is significantly more difficult now to do it than prior to the, the sequels being what they are. Because they could have brought her in in this show. 
as well as Galen Merrick and had them gone by the time the sequels come around so that they, they could have had mm-hmm. whatever story arc they needed to Do get. you think people would get mad if they brought back a, a character like Mary Jade and then didn't have her get I together th- with Luke? To be... Yeah. No, they'd have to definitely have... That's the thing, have right? something with Luke, for sure. That's the thing. is like I don't think she's one of those characters that necessarily fits anymore because of her connection to that family and then it's this think she probably could exist but she'd have to it would be a very different iteration of her whereas like withdrawn like they're not gonna have kids no she'd have to die or whatever disappear before they have kids it's like maybe she's see this uh, okay dave filoni is a master of of making of fixing stuff right he took the prequels which divided the fan base and he really got everyone to rally behind it by expanding it out more and filling in the details. Yeah. I think he could do that again with the sequels. Let's, because a, a big problem, hear me out, a big problem people have is how Luke so quickly turned on Ben when he sensed the dark side in him. Mm-hmm. They could use Mara Jade. Maybe she, uh, something happens while she's pregnant or whatever, and that could be a stepping stone towards what happens between him and Ben. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how that would... How that would... Well, if she's pregnant, though, that means Luke had a son that we just never knew about. Yeah, but the, you know, unborn, something happens. Yeah, uh, yeah maybe. That's true. It may, it'd be a tragedy in his life, right? That would affect him quite dearly. I think that would, that would, be, that would be a big event in his life that would help explain what happened to him. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. That's a good point. Yeah, I could see that, maybe. Um, yeah, there's there's certainly some characters out there that... I mean, as far as the title goes, maybe it was just an expression to say that, like, he's not literally the Emperor's Hand, because that's the title, it's like the Emperor's Hand. But it's like the Hand of the Emperor, maybe it's just a way of saying, like, you know, this is an extension of, like, the Emperor's power here in Mandalore. Mm. Maybe, maybe that's kind of Could be. playing up on that, you know, but... Maybe we're just overthinking this as usual. Yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the first episode that Sabine uses Ezra's lightsaber for the first time. And, you know, we've seen from the recent trailers that that's the same lightsaber that she's using uh, with some modifications made. But uh, it's pretty sweet that, like, you know, we get to see this is the first episode, season three, episode 16, that, that it happens, you know, ever first. So she's got, you know, some use of it already. Uh, in the series and we finally getting as you can see through this episode we're getting closer and closer to to ahsoka you know through little things like this it's like oh we're getting there it's funny i didn't even notice that because in the trailer she's using it using the same saber yeah yeah put the two together yeah (laughs) yeah exactly um yeah and uh that's all i got so pablo points of poodles unless you have anything last minute to bring up on this one uh one last thing that i thought was really weird so it's worth bringing up so uh, Fen Rao, when he's like sneaking around outside the castle, so he catches on what's going on by using some sort of tech that allows him to see through the fortress walls and hear clearly what they're talking about. Yeah, it was pretty some high tech, high tech, high tech stuff. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? We've never seen this before. We never see it again. How does he hear through walls of an enclosed like steel building? So I've seen some pretty intense spy movies where like they use like lasers to like pinpoint audio on the other side of like a glass 
wall or whatever. So maybe he was using some very variation of that in the Star Wars universe. But it was no window. It would be neat to see it again because I hear you. And it's always cool when they when they sort of take a piece of technology that's invented in one story and then expand on how it works in another. And like we've seen it happen before, the holographic disguise matrix, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the beacon that we're able to trace through hyperspace, you know, weird stuff like that. Uh, Comlink technology as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, High Republic is kind of expanding how that sort of becomes a thing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like maybe maybe there's a future story and, you know, that, that this piece of gear is elaborated on. I think it was just like this random story point they needed to make like how else would he figure it out yeah it just got thrown in there but it's to me it's not as bad but it's kind of going down the same lines of we needed something so now the helicopter now lightsabers can fly <laughs> yeah that, that's a big piece that, of tech yeah. right like yeah you lose a lot of the ability to con- like rebels to conspire and stuff that's true. So then why does it never come up again? Why doesn't the Empire just have these things everywhere to spy on everyone? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe somewhere they do, right? Like maybe Coruscant. That's maybe that's why Coruscant is so unsafe. Like for them to chat in Andor, because mm-hmm. maybe devices like that do exist and like they know it, right? No, it's possible. Yeah, right, maybe we'll see in Andor season two. Who knows? Story group. This is what you're here for. Tell tell us the creatives about this. Exactly. <laughs> Pablo Porza Pudu's, um, what do you think this gets? Step down from um, the last one, but it's still good one. overall. I would give it one Pablo point. I'll it was it good. It was a solid good, mm. but not I'm, great. I'm glad we got rid of Gar Saxon, even if it wasn't in the best way. Yeah. He's a jerk. <laughs> He's a jerk. He's a one and a quarter. One and a quarter. I don't right. think it's quite one and a half. Yeah. Fair enough. Sweet. Season 3, episode 17, Through Imperial Eyes, directed by Saul Ruiz, written by Nicole Dubuk, Henry Gilroy, and uh, came out on Disney XD February 25th, 2017. An Imperial light cruiser over Lothal intercepts a shuttle fleeing the planet. On board are Ezra Bridger, disguised as a bounty hunter, and the droids Chopper and AP-5. Ezra tells Agent Callus that the Rebels believe that the Empire has intercepted his last transmission as Fulcrum, and they have come up with a way to help him defect to his, uh, if his cover is blown. Grand Admiral Thrawn arrives in his Star Destroyer Chimera and informs the officers on board that he has asked Colonel Wilhuff Tarkin of the ISB to locate the Rebel spy in their midst. Callus swaps his code cylinder with that of Lieutenant List and uses List credentials to free Ezra and infiltrate Thrawn's office where the droids erase Adelon from the Thrawn's, from Thrawn's database and transmit the clearance codes for Kanan and Rex to rescue them. List believes Governor Price to be the traitor, stuns her as she's trying to stop the rebels from leaving, and he is arrested as a spy. While List believes to be, uh, is believed to be Fulcrum, Callus decides to remain with the Empire, although the conversation with Yularen uh, and Thrawn reveals that he actually knows that Callus is the spy and intends to use him 
to their advantage. Through Imperial Eyes gives us an inside look at the Imperial side of the conflict. What details did you have to pay particularly close attention to in working on this episode? The idea of really focusing on the Imperial side is something, I think there's been a lot of hunger from that in terms of the viewership, because there's a lot of fans of the Empire out there to see what their day-to-day -day activity is. But finally give Callus an episode. We really wanted to bring out how skilled these higher level Imperial officers are. And they're cunning, smart people. So while they're probably slowed down by their own bureaucratic processes, they're very efficient. Originally, I wanted to shoot almost entirely POV of Callus through the whole episode, but we decided that that would be really tricky on our schedule to figure out and maintain. But that's where the first shot of it comes from, where he wakes up. You always run into weird things when you do a scene like that because we don't have a callus in sleepwear. We don't have time to make that kind of model. So if you look when you wake up, he's wearing his armor. So maybe he's just really proactive. He's always on the go. But in Clone Wars, we had to do Dooku in his pajamas. We put Ezra in some sleepwear later. It's like one of the things you never really think about. Colonel Yularen shows up in this episode for the first time since the Clone Wars. How has his job changed since he was a Republic Admiral? The character is based on someone from episode four. The very first time we see the guy who we now recognize as Yularen, he was an Imperial officer with the white tunic. And then so we reverse engineered him for Clone Wars to make him a fleet admiral. And now we're bringing him back to his original roots as that intelligence officer from A New Hope. As Yularen saw the Empire's face and standing change from a Republic to an Empire, he became more involved in something less conflict-oriented and more into spy and espionage. He was always a stickler for the rules, and I think that's really probably why he went into the ISB, which is sort of a cross between the CIA and the FBI for the Empire. You can kind of see that he definitely knows what he's doing. Thrawn seems to handle himself quite well in a fight. Is that from standard Imperial training, or is there something more in his background? We wanted to show that Thrawn as a threat is not just a cerebral threat. He does have a physicality to back things up as well. He's honed himself as a weapon. As someone who is a tactician, he probably has studied all the various martial arts. For the most part, I think he sees it as almost like a calming thing, a Zen thing, and a, an exercise. But it also equips him well if he has to actually come to physical confrontation, which he may later in the series. We get to see Thrawn's office, and there seem to be some Easter eggs hidden in there. There are. The Holy Grail is in the antechamber that leads to Thrawn's office. He had a clone helmet, and for a while it was a blank one. And I just thought, well, why don't we just do something that will make some people obsess on it? So we turned it into Grease Helmet, which is the trooper that Yoda decapitated mm -hmm. in Revenge of the Sith. We're not saying 100% it's definitely Grease, but I've only ever seen that paint scheme on one helmet. We also have a bust of the species that Elo Asti is in Ep7. And then the big one is the Ralph McQuarrie drawing of Lothal, or what became Lothal, which is the first time where we have directly used Ralph's art in final renders of the show. How long has Thrawn known that Callus was Fulcrum? Did he really just figure it out, or has he been sitting on that intel? I think he's very careful to make accusations. I think that he would find a lot of facts before he did, especially someone as highly ranked as Callus has been, and he wants to be sure. He's not just interested in saying, ha, I got you. It's more like, I got you, and now I can use you in this way. So Thrawn is more about this sort of delayed gratification of accomplishment, which makes him very different from a lot of the Imperials that we're used to. How will Callus be an asset to the Rebels? He's a double agent at this point. It's intel and information. The risk is, with someone like Thrawn, is he going to be able to succeed for us, or is that risk going to be too great? How long can he pull this off? And what sacrifice is he going to have to make to pull this off? 
All right. Well, there you go. Lots of Easter eggs in Thrawn's office. I like that a lot. In fact, the Gree helmet was something I wrote down, but uh, oh, you pointed out the lizards. Yeah, your Silamari. Those are from the original Thrawn trilogy. Yeah. So the little lizard statues behind his desk. They're, um, you know, they're 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 origin in Legends. They're those lizards that they're actually creatures, and they prevent Jedi from using the Force around Thrawn. Like a, like a anti-force bubble. Yeah. So if through the bubble, you can't sense anything. Yeah, I'm glad they got rid of that for canon. What's funny is I think they pretty much just brought it back, didn't they? Well, they're just statues. They're just statues of the character. They're they're not actually lizards. No, but is there something in like in Jedi Fallen Order that has like anti force capabilities? Uh no, you're thinking of um the High Republic, there's a creature that's oh, yeah, able to sorry, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a creature that's able to petrify the Jedi through the through the force. And yeah, I know it, 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 it basically, they can still sort of, um, it, it basically disturbs. Yeah. You're, you're kind of right. Like it sort of disturbs their ability to sense any stuff. That's to why use they, the force properly kind of thing. That's yeah. Right. That's why the villain keeps them around, around him. It's it. yeah. It, yeah. It's kind of weird. Yeah. We, we've, t- we've definitely like, we'll, we'll do a, a more in-depth conversation on that. I think in the future, uh, because it is a bit of a, bit of a, a point of um you know rabbit hole <laughs> yeah yeah a bit of a black hole when it comes to you know what can be said about something like that but yeah it's um, just funny that's one of those things that they they removed i think dave filoni said said when, when they brought back thron for rebels like we can mm-hmm. back this great character but uh with the in the rule of the eu we can cut out a lot of the weird stuff like the lizards so then it's, it's funny that they well first of all they have a, an easter egg homage to it here behind Thrawn's desk, but then they, of course, some novelist just brings back like basically the same thing. Yeah, like a s- altered version of it. Now, oh, well, <laughs> Ezra's undercover uniform as a bounty hunter was pretty cool. Um, Thrawn fighting against those Sentry uh, droids is pretty flex, and uh, <laughs> Colonel Yularen uh, returns to the story. We last saw him in Andor most recently, and uh, you know, as Pablo was saying, introduced uh, to us as a reverse engineered version from a new hope uh, they put him in the clone wars as anakin's admiral yularen and uh, actually speaking of which i believe admiral yularen has uh, something to say oh does he yeah right here on star wars escape pod star wars escape pod is the republic's choice of podcast anywhere in the galaxy Leave a stellar review on TuneIn each week for more. Oh, thank you, Admiral. Well, I can't believe that came from the ISB. I know, right? I guess the whole ISB. They must, they must all be followers listening to us. Exactly. Yeah, wow. the whole empire. <laughs> I mean, where's all reviews? <laughs> <laughs> Leave a review no and uh, hunting rebels. Tune in each week for more. Uh, if those are, for those of you who are still listening, um, <laughs> uh, Grease helmet on display at Thrawn. You know, I like to believe that that's Grease helmet. That's a pretty cool thought. Uh, this episode has uh, quite the mole hunt going on. You know, the uh, thankfully it didn't come across as too cheesy because we've seen hucks. Hawks, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen mole hunts happen in Star Wars before, and they've been less it's than me. appealing. I'm the I'm mole. the spy. <laughs> you what? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but we also saw it in season 
Oh, actually, you know what? Earlier in this season, I think when Thrawn went to that Lothal workshop, you know, when they were doing the ATST work and stuff mm-hmm. down there, you're building all the ships and stuff like that. That mole hunt was sort of not that great when Mr. Whatever's his face is kind of got blows up on a speeder and stuff. You know what I mean? It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't yeah. that long ago. I forget what his name is, but yeah, it's just it was the, the that farmer, was. They stole his land and then he had no chance. They arrested him and he was forced to work in this factory and then they blowed him up. Yeah, yeah, they blowed him up. Boom! Boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so Callus uh, is found out despite his efforts to cover up his identity at the end, mainly because Sabine's artwork on Ezra's freaking helmet of the Lothcat design gave it all away. That was it. Man. That was that's, the... That's, that was the linchpin. That was the linchpin. The, you know, that's what oh, revealed no. him. So... Um, so yeah. Whose fault is that then? Is that Sabine's fault or is that? So Zeb fault? Zeb saves Callus Ka- Ka- uh, and redeems him, and then Sabine and Ezra basically just kill him again. Yeah, pretty much. Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one. No, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'll give it one Pablo point. I'll be generous. That's very generous. I think. I was gonna say was- Bendu. Yeah. I was going to say Bendu. You know, you don't know, screw it, Bendu. Bendu. <laughs> I give it a Bendu. Yeah, because like, it, it was, it, it was uh, the whole, like... It was okay. You know, cat and mouse, figuring out the mole thing was fun. I like I liked more uh, getting to Thrawn's head. Yeah, that was cool. In Yalar, now being part of it too, I think it was cool. But it's still very fillery. It is still very fillery, yeah. It was like, no. it was all right. It was all right. It's just like, yeah, it's a Bendu. No, I agree. I'm, I'll give it a Bendu as well. I'm, I'm, I'm just thankful it wasn't worse than that because most of these mole hunt things just always go awry like they always don't turn out very well it's too cheesy it's too cheesy yeah Mm. all right um sweet moving on the last one unless you got anything more to bring up nope was it for me awesome season three episode 18 secret cargo directed by bosco ing written by matt mitch novitz Came out on Disney XD March 4th, 2017, and guest stars Genevieve O'Reilly returning to her role as Mon Mothma from the prequels and Andor. Bonnie Wilde, Yuri uh, Lowenthal, Phil Lamar, Josh Brenner also played a character in Star Wars Resistance. Nico, whatever his name is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I recognize his voice. That's I him. I kept thinking like... That's him. It's funny because last time I thought, this is the guy who does Nico. I brought it up here on like, the podcast and looked it up when it wasn't him. Yeah. <laughs> so then this time I was listening. I'm like, I swear. I'm like, is it Nico? Like that's what I thought last time. So it can't be. It yeah. can't be him. Yeah. And it was him. Is his name actually Nico? I think it's like, it's something close to that, isn't it? No, that's right. I think is it Nico? Nico. Oh. And then uh, Mario Vernaza, uh, can't forget you, last guest star. And uh, that is all the stats for Secret Cargo. And here is the summary. The crew of the Ghost waits in a junk field to rendezvous with and refuel a rebel ship carrying a secret cargo. The Ghost is found by an Imperial infiltrator probe droid, which we just saw in the other episode, which the crew destroys, but not before it transmits their location to the Empire. The rebel ship arrives and the cargo is revealed to be Senator Mon Mothma herself, who is on the run after recently speaking out against the Emperor in the Senate. Two Imperial cruisers arrive and Ezra joins the Gold Squadron to fight off the TIE Fighters and disable one of the cruisers. As Mon Mothma and her crew evacuate the Ghost, Grand Admiral Thrawn surprises, uh, surmises that Hera will attempt to escape the sector via the Archeon Nebula. 
and he sends two Star Destroyers and the prototype TIE Defender to intercept them. Hera destroys the two TIEs by flying close to a star, but the Defender survives and destroys most of Gold Squadron, except for Ezra and the Gold Leader. Unfortunately, as the ghost as the ghost leaves the nebula, it is caught in the tractor beam by Governor Price's Star Destroyer, and Ezra and Gold Leader disable the Tie Defender with ion cannons. Then exit the nebula and fire the proton torpedoes into it, triggering an explosion, an explosion which covers covers massive damage to the t- Star Destroyers escaping into hyperspace, and the ghost brings Mon Mothma to Dantooine, where she transmits a message to all the Rebel cells, urging the formation of the Rebel Alliance. As the Ghost crew watches in amazement, dozens of capital ships from around the galaxy drop out of hyperspace in response to the call to rebellion. And there we have the final culmination of uh, the the unification of the Rebel Alliance. Mon Mothma is out of her secret spy espionage mode that we know her to be in during the events of Andor. And uh, all I can think about is, uh, will we see Mon Mothma's speech play into contacts in Andor Season 2? Or yeah, will so there be a bit of wonder, a time jump going on here? Do we, yeah, see, do we have a timeline of that? Because I, I've, honestly, if I had watched this before watching Andor Season 1, that would have just took all the wind out of the the sails of you know knowing if she's going to get caught or not. Yeah. You know, um, something that I was thinking about was they did say that Season 2 will kind of do some time jumping around mm-hmm. and uh, time time jump during the season, but also um, a time jump after it connects up to season one. And uh, I believe they also said that season two of Andor will segue right into Rogue One, just the way that Rogue One segues into A New Hope. So season two is going to be a bit more kind of spaced out as far as the episodes and when they take place. So being... As in May, it will overlap with Star Wars Rebels completely. And I wonder if we will see maybe a crossover which happens with this episode. Maybe we will see the moment that Mon Mothma does give that speech. Yeah, the other side, like from the Coruscant side. Yeah. She escapes Coruscant and leads directly into this episode. Yeah, and there's a good chance. I mean, now that they've got all these, uh, other than Kanan, of course, they have casting for all of these Rebels crew members now. Like, how cool would it be to, like, see them show up in that show, you know? Like, that would be amazing. So, um, go off the wait and see. In Secret Cargo, the Rebels help rescue the one and only Mon Mothma. As a Star Wars fan, what's it like bringing that iconic character into your story? It's always fun when you get to act off of legendary characters in Star Wars, so that's been cool, and it shows what level the Rebellion is growing to. And the fun part of it has been, we all have taken shots at her voice, so that's been really funny. (laughs) And when either Freddy or I do, we call her Man Mothma. In Secret Cargo, we get to see Mon Mothma right after she's left the Senate. What has she been up to since the events of Revenge of the Sith? She's trying to limit the Emperor's power and protect as many worlds as she can through politics, negotiations, diplomacy. This is failing, and she knows it's failing. She wants some type of legitimate strength to fight the Empire, but we pick her up at a point where she realizes that that's all pretty much lost at this point, and she doesn't really believe 
believe that they're going to be able to avoid open conflict, but she's concerned that they don't really have the resources to fight the Empire. This is a historic moment in the series. She's been doing a lot of what Bail Organa has been doing, which is clandestinely arranging rebel cells and funneling support to these freedom fighters across various places in the galaxy. But she hasn't come out as a public enemy of the Empire until this episode. We meet Gold Leader and General Dadan in this episode yeah, as well. Do, yeah. What have they been up to while we've been following another rebel cell? There probably is a whole TV series just about Gold Leader and General Dodonna and the, the crazy adventures that they're on. But they were a great way to symbolize Yavin, kind of like the bigger rebellion that's going on and teaming up our groups. They're primarily a fighter squadron, so they've probably been protecting convoys, maybe hitting a few soft Imperial targets here and there. You gotta remember, we're not at the point where it's been a public declaration of war against the Empire. Mm -hmm. That really comes in Rogue One. So they are doing stealth missions, small things here and there. Mon Mothma discusses the idea of uniting the rebel cells. How does this relate to the rebel alliance as we see in Rogue One? This is probably a key moment where many of the characters we see in Rogue One coming together, they probably first came together in this episode. This is really about bringing all these various cells together and learning how to operate effectively together. But as we see in Rogue One, there's still a lot of disagreement as right. to how to deal with this empire. Producing this stuff is tricky because you're trying to make it all line up, but you'll see, you know, as we go forward that there's more of a Rogue One aesthetic that <laughs> influences Rebels, as I try to include some of the look of those groups. Is it safe to assume that much of the fleet that we see at the end of this episode is present during Rogue One? I would say a lot of it is. Maybe not all of it, because there's a few ship types that we don't see in Rogue One, so maybe they just weren't combat ready. Maybe they were off in the wings getting refitted for a future combat, but I want to think that everything that the Rebel Alliance had that could move, that could fight, was sent to Scarif. All right, well, there you go. More ties to Rogue One. That was pretty sweet. Yeah, because that movie would have just came out, right? I think they said that a handful of recons ago. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, that, that it was like a couple months prior that, you know, when this episode came out, it was uh, a couple months prior that Rogue One hit theaters. So but they would have been working on this. Years, you know, to a year and a half or so prior, yeah. probably. So yeah. Like kind of on the same timeline as Rogue One. Yeah, they would have lined it up pretty well. But my big question to you is, do you think, um, do you think Mon Mothma's character, going off of what they were saying just now in the Rebels Recon, do you think that they stuck pretty true to how they portrayed that character in Andor Season 1? Hmm. It's tough to say because at this point, she feels more like how I know her to be in Return of the Jedi. I would say she's closer to the Return of the Jedi version of Mon Mothma than the Rogue One version. But okay. I, yeah, that's I, that's what I felt. Because I found the, the Andor one, I mean, we've seen some amazing performance from Genevieve O'Reilly, her playing this very stressed out character, you know, dealing with all the mm -hmm. secret finances for the rebellion and this and that, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is the episode where this is after all that happens. So she seems a lot more lighthearted and naturally it is a kid's show. It can't be super depressing or anything like that, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's cool to see kind of the moment that she really comes out as a public enemy against the empire and, uh, the emperor himself and basically criticizes him and then like ditches. Right. So, yeah, I mean, like going back to that whole Andor season two thing, it would be so cool to get an episode where, that story plays out, you know, and maybe we do get some appearances from the, the, the ghost of the crew. Mm -hmm. uh, or if not that, maybe the characters that, like Gold Squadron, which are the ones that are escorting her away, you know, and 
trying to kind of smuggle her away from the empire like that would be, be cool that would like, be pretty I, sweet i'd like to see that whole thing yeah that would be awesome so uh yeah pretty cool and mon mothma already knows of ezra bridger uh in this episode so it'd be very interesting to see if maybe there's any well, names thrown around at the very least you know in andor season two that makes sense because she well we don't from andor and correct me if i'm wrong but she's more in a position where she can she's aware of all the different cells yeah she's kind of one of the people orchestrating it all coming together yeah that her and bale and and uh i mean who knows what happens with luthan yeah i was gonna say is luthan on the same tier as them or is luthan just control of a specific cell no i think he is sort of on the same tier with them yeah because we were, we were talking about that during andor after shows with kirk and mm. you know this this came up and and i think yeah luthan is on the same tier of power but at the same time he's uh a lot more kind of in the mud, right? So yeah, well, he's got to do the dirty work. So if, like things are going to leak, can't trust people. Yeah, he's doing the, uh, you know, the back alley jobs. Exactly. Yeah, Dantooine base is mentioned, and we don't see it. I don't believe, but um, Dantooine, da- the old Dantooine base that Leia gives Vader and Tarkin in Episode Four as a location for the Rebel base. They're long gone by that point, but it's cool to kind of see that. They're not actually that long gone as we thought. Like, this is a couple, maybe three, two or three years prior to the events of A New Hope. And, you know, they're still very active on Dantooine. So, I mean. Sorry, I'm just laughing to what I brought up a few episodes back. Where George just, like, he likes a name and then all these planets just sound the same. Dantooine, Tatooine. Yeah, exactly. And you have you know, Alderaan, Onderaan. Yeah, similar. There's another one for that one, too. I can't remember right now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, we saw Thrawn's prototypes, the Defenders, finally for the first episode, uh, put into action, that is, that isn't a schematic. Um, what did you think of that? You know, seeing the Defenders for, for the, like, we saw the Defenders for the first time now in... in uh, they have very strong shields. <laughs> chronologically canon. Yeah, and, like, you can see kind of why he advocates for this, because... They really do change the playing field a little bit when oh, going man. up against the Rebellion. Yeah, right? it's not just like one shot, one and done from the yeah. fighting them. Yeah. So you, so you don't have people in the Ghost take out like six or seven TIE fighters, no problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool to see them kind of put to use. You think that even with the, the success they've had, just with the resilience of it seen here, that they didn't put more money to extend it out after the program goes sideways. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I mean... But does it go sideways? Like, I can't I remember. Maybe later. Season. Maybe later, yeah. We can get to it then. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty yeah. sure that's what happens. Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, memory's a little foggy on that. I'm surprised that they would put Ezra in an X, in a Y-Wing because he doesn't seem like an experienced pilot to me. No, he's, oh, the only like, thing he's flown is the Phantom. Yeah, so, like, why the heck would he be piloting a whole ship? Like, that just makes yeah, no and, sense. And, a, like, a bomber, which would be, like, an entirely different ship Yeah. than the Phantom. Yeah, like, what? Like, why? Just stick him in a turret in the Ghost, right? Like That would make more sense. Because normally you'd think Sabine would do it, but as we learned... You know, two episodes ago, Sabine's not here right now. Yeah, she's on, yeah, we're somewhere in the Mandalore system rallying. Zeb's piloted stuff. He could technically do it. Yeah. I'm not sure how experienced he is. But at the same time, you know what? Ezra is a Jedi, so he does have extra senses. Did he need to be on another ship, though? Because, like, I'm just trying to think. Like, is there a reason why they did it that way? So all, all the... 
you know, Disney XD fans can feel like they're a part of the action too. The relatability. I guess so. I don't know. Felt like it was a little unnecessary. Don't you like when 10-year-old kids, you know, upshow the, the heroes of the original trilogy movies? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm giving Ezra a hard time. I think he's like 16. I always, g- uh, yeah, yeah. I always give Ezra a hard time too. But um, the, the okay, the nebula blowing up that was a really nice effect. You know, props to the VFX team on this. You know, on the show, really, really cool. So many colors. You know, wrapping around the star destroyer, blowing it up, sucking That's it into the nebula. Cool. Yeah, awesome. top, top, top uh, notch stuff. Yeah, because we again we see that in Rogue One, right? They do like a drive by one of the. Star Destroyers, and they, they like, use, like, uh, the ion cannons on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It. I'm pretty sure yeah. that happens. The, the the actual, like, star nebula, though, when they fire the tro- proton torpedo into mm-hmm. the star, and it, like, goes all, oh, that like, bit. Yeah, 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 like that. That was really nice. Super cool. It was smart, too, right? Trying to use your, your surroundings. Yeah. Very Batman. Totally. <laughs> Uh, I loved that we saw the growing rebel fleets, you know, it's quite big now. And like Pablo and Dave were saying, you know, we, this is most of the ships that we see in Rogue One on Scarif. Uh, cause that's the first, that marks the first big battle between the rebellion and the empire. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's sweet to see all that stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I'm still wondering where the ghost was by the time of, of, uh, that final, that battle, you know, because because at some point through Rogue One, you do see the ghost parked on the Yavin base, but yeah. then you see it gone again, right? Is it, so they're not, they weren't at the Battle of Scarif. No, I don't believe so. And if they were, no, you know what? I think I forget. I forget I if they were. Is. I think I it. I think it is. Shot where you see it like fly. Oh, by. right. right. Yeah, it is there. But then you don't see it again in A New Hope. So the question is like, where did they go? And and well, the New Hope I think is a specific cell. Maybe they went That's back. That's why there's just a handful of X-wings. Maybe back to Lothal or something. I have no idea. But yeah, who knows? So maybe that cell hasn't quite joined up yet. Because we don't. Do we see any X-wings in this? I don't think. Well, no. We see the Only blue, the Y-wings. Blue squadron in in Rogue One. Yeah. We don't see Red Squadron though. You do see X-wings though. Only Blue Squadron. Right. Wait, di- no, we did see Red Squadron. Do you? Yeah, because Red, I believe Red 5 dies, right? That's why Luke gets the call sign. I think so. If I'm not mistaken, I can't remember now. I haven't seen Rogue One in a while. Yeah, weirdly enough, you yeah. know, I feel like, I feel like we consume and talk about Star Wars so much, like, on a weekly basis, we just don't always, like, we don't go always, you we don't, don't go always back. go, yeah, you don't always go back to the too classics, right? Stuff. Yeah, it's too much new stuff, yeah. Oh, we'll have to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I know for I know for sure Blue Squadron's there, and they're the ones that are on land. Right, like they're on like planet side. So maybe Red Squadron's there in um, space. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll do a Rebels talk bonus episode. Cap off the series with Rogue One by episode eight of Ahsoka. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but that's all I got. Um, I would give this episode. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think it was, uh, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it, it was I'll, good. I'll I think about one pop point. Yeah, I think I think one is one is fair. You know, it's like it's pretty. It's pretty good. It's pretty good, and I feel like it has a lot to do with Mon Mothma's story and the greater, greater mm-hmm. scheme of things. So it, it is interesting seeing her before she gets flushed out in in Andor, though. Yeah, 
Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I think I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with that, you know, how they tie all that stuff in. So, yeah. But, um, man, I, uh, do you have any last things you want to bring up before we start to close off? Just that I think we're going to have to maybe get three episodes a week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're going to be hammering these, these Star Wars Rebels episodes out as, as you know, fast as can be. Well, hammer just keeps swinging faster because I realize our deadline gets closer. <laughs> we are one week away. Uh, that close, man. We're one week away. Oh yeah, so we're we're definitely going to be overlapping, you know, a little bit. But I mean, we're we're going to be finishing up very very soon. So you know, those of you who are sticking with us with Rebels, you know, get yourself ahead of us, and uh, you know, you can always just backtrack listen to the after shows kind of at a later time. But if you want to finish the series and, you know, finish up Star Wars Rebels before Ahsoka hits on the 23rd of August, uh, just be our guest. Just jump forward, hit that lightspeed button, and, uh, you know, just go for it. And uh, you'll catch our Rebels talk episodes as they come out within the next two weeks, which will wrap up the series. And uh, then we'll be headstrong into Ahsoka after shows uh, up until that show wraps up in October. I believe it is. So, yeah, we got a lot of a lot of Star Wars ahead, and uh, somewhere in there, we got a book review to do, <laughs> Inquisitor: Rise of the Red Blade, and uh, you know maybe we might push that forward. <laughs> this is a lot. Push it back, sorry. Yeah, yeah. maybe after Ahsoka. <laughs> yeah, maybe after Ahsoka, we'll cover that up. Uh, so yeah, um, but yeah, here we go. So I mean, uh, thank you, sir, for coming back on the show, and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Always good to be here. I'll see you out there. Keep flying. Join the alliance. It feels so good. All right. And for those of you who stuck with us so far, thank you so much for tuning in to Star Wars Escape Pod and for another episode of, of Rebels Talk. It's uh, so awesome to have you guys kind of tuning in multiple times a week at this point uh, to stick stick with us watching uh, Star Wars Rebels. I mean, it's exciting stuff. And uh, up next on Rebels Talk, we have the following four episodes. Season 3, episode 19, 20, 21, and 22. That finishes off the remaining episodes of Season 3. So that'll be our next episode of Rebels Talk. And that'll probably be the last one that airs before Ahsoka if we don't get around to squeezing in the first four episodes of Season 4, which are uh, a set of two two arc episodes which is uh, the heroes of mandalore part one and two and in the name rebellion part one and two uh so uh lots to look forward to but in the meantime check the description below for our social handles the link tree the podcast archives and so much more use the handle at swsk podcast shoot us an email give us a review we love you guys may the force be with you we'll see you in the next one of star wars escape pod